Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to introduce you to a podcast we love. It's all about women rising up, called Inflection Point with Lauren Schiller. This season, Lauren will introduce you to quote-unquote radical people who are transforming the systems as we know them, from legendary activists like Gloria Steinem to policymakers and tech entrepreneurs. You'll hear honest, powerful stories of how change gets made and come away with new ways of responding to problems the world throws at you. To hear how women rise up and get radical, search for Inflection Point with Lauren Schiller wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Okay, let's get to the show. Take a second to think about all the people you know. The friends, family, partners, co-workers, mentors, etc. Now think about all the people that they know. And then all the people that those people know. It all forms a bustling, complicated, interconnected web. Welcome back to Web of Women the show that dives into the identities and relationships that form who we are as individuals and communities. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Wonder Media Network. I started this season off by talking to four women I know from different parts of my life. For episode two, I interviewed my friend Jing Cao. Then each of the women I interviewed picked someone from her life to talk to. So in episode six, Jing talked to her friend from college, Danielle Guillen. Now, we're extending the interview chains one step further. Today, it's Danielle's turn to pick someone from her life to bring into the conversation. My name is Danielle Guillen. I'm the director of organizing and policy for LAUSD School Board District. And right now, I'm speaking with Anel in the car in a parking lot. And I'll let her tell you a little bit more about our location. (laughs) Hi, everyone. My name is Anel Torres. I am an educator. Right now, we are, like Danielle said, in an underground parking lot at the USC campus. Let's take a few minutes, Anel, to talk about where you've been in life and kind of like your life story. So maybe like a quick synopsis of like, how did we get to this moment in your car at the USC parking lot? (laughs) Girl, (laughs) we're going to need hours. No, I'm just kidding. Um, So I was born and raised in Anaheim, California, in Orange County. And I went through all of my public education in Anaheim, even into college after high school. So I went to Cal State Fullerton and I studied history for the sole purpose that I love history. That's really it. I didn't really have like a very clear trajectory of what Mm -hmm. I was going to do with it. Mm -hmm. But during my college years, I got a job at an after school program working for the YMCA. And that's kind of what ignited me to get into education. And after finishing Cal State Fullerton and finishing my degree, pursuing a teaching credential. Mm -hmm. So I applied to Teach for America Mm -hmm. because there were like Teach for America recruiters at my university. And I applied. I went through the 
interviewing process, how there's many steps to it. And you know about it because you got into it. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> you know, they um, missed a huge gem if they're listening <laughs> to this. I'm just going to put that yeah. one out there. <laughs> but um, no, I got to the final interview and I didn't get in afterwards. So I kind of looked at the teacher credentialing program, like resource email that they sent out to everyone who they mm. did not offer the job to. And in that email, Aspire Charter Schools was in it. Mm. And so I applied there. I got in and I did my one-year teaching credentialing and master's program with them. And for the past five years, I was, including that co-teaching um, experience the first year, for the past five years, I've been, I was working for them until last year where I decided to leave that mm -hmm. job and go to South America for almost nine months. Yeah. And that's actually, I met you right before you left. Mm -hmm. um, like, we, like probably a month before I left. Yeah. In May. I met Anel, her sister and a friend of mine, and invited me over for brunch at her house. And she wanted me to meet her sister. Yeah. And we're all obsessed with Oprah's Super Soul Sunday. Yes. The podcast. Um, the podcast. So we <laughs> wanted to eat and listen to it and, like, have, like, a girls' night. And I only had, like, an hour there yeah, before right. I had to, like, go somewhere else. And so we had this really great conversation when we met, right, about actually you transitioning out of the classroom, not knowing what you wanted to do, mm -hmm. but knowing that the last five years had been a lot, but this last year in particular had been kind of this year of self-realization for you that maybe teaching wasn't your passion or your calling any longer. And so I'm wondering, like... <clears throat> What brought you from that point to go to South America? So my last year in teaching was the year that I kind of realized and made the decision that it was going to be my last year teaching. And it was for a few reasons. Um, I had like finally identified that the teaching environment that I was in was not suiting my passions anymore. And because of the high amounts of stress I was experiencing working where I was working, it was also affecting my health, like, in a very, very dramatic way. And so because of the effect it had on my health the last few years of the immense amount of stress I had been feeling at my job, I had made the decision that I was going to be leaving my job. And I made that decision early on in the beginning of the last school year, mm -hmm. around October. But my goal was definitely going to be always to finish the school year. So I had made that decision around October. But the idea of going to South America didn't come about until... Jeez, it was it was pretty late into the following year. So while I was still working my last year at the school, maybe around March, February mm -hmm. or March is when I decided that I was going to be traveling. Mm -hmm. And that was just a few months before I was actually going to leave in July. I decided on Colombia because I had always wanted to go to Colombia. And it was really the sole reason was because I love a lot of the Colombian singers. <laughs> Who does not love a good? Is it Carlos Vives, oh, yeah, Carlos Juanes, Vives. Shakira, Maluma, J Balvin? I could go on. <laughs> Mostly just Maluma. But really, he is a cutie. But really, it was Carlos Vives really that intrigued me. I'm in love with him. <clears throat> yeah, I decided I was going to be going to Colombia. And I just decided that since I was going to be making this year my last school year, of teaching, at least for that school, mm -hmm. I was like, well, let me take this opportunity also, which is I don't know exactly what I'm going to be doing next mm -hmm. to travel. And so I had the means to travel because I had been saving for many years to purchase a house. So I decided, well, I'm just going to take a little bit of those funds and just go to South America. The idea was that I was going to be in Colombia for at least a month mm -hmm. and potentially 
explore a little bit of Colombia for an extra few weeks or an extra month or so, and even maybe go into like a country or two within South America. Yeah. But it was a definite, like I was going to be in South America for a month, just in Colombia. But little did I know I would be staying there for almost nine months. And I decided that as I went, like it wasn't anything that I planned. I definitely didn't do any type of like backpacking checklist before I left because once I got to South America and I actually began the backpacking like experience going from one country to the next mm-hmm. through like buses and all that, mm-hmm. um, I came to realize like, oh, wow, like there are actual travelers that like planned this out. Like <laughs> they brought their emergency like medicine. They brought like headlamps. They brought tense like they brought things that I did not ever consider because I was never planning on backpacking across South America. I remember the moment Carla your sister told me because you had told me before you left like I'm gonna be leaving I'm gonna be there for maybe a month or two (laughs) I don't know and I was like oh cool I'll see you like at the start of this next school year and then one day I was talking to your sister and Carla was like no one else decided that she's not coming back until March 2019 or it was like December it was November oh, November before Thanksgiving that was the original plan and then November rolls around and then you decide to stay until March March yeah but so tell us a little bit more about like your South American journey so you start off in Colombia mm-hmm. what is your first month like and what then prompts you to stay until November the mm-hmm. first little deadline the first deadline self-imposed <laughs> So I went to Colombia to volunteer at a hostel for a month. And it was a hostel in, um, for those that know like the Colombian geography, it's in the northeastern corner of the country, mm-hmm. really close to the Venezuelan border. It's the easternmost department in Colombia. And for everyone in Colombia, instead of states, they're called departments. Departments, yeah, which is La Guajira. And so I was in that department. And I was staying in the capital of La Guajira called Rio Acha. That's where my mm. placement was to do my workaway. That's how I found my volunteer placement through workaway.org. Yeah, so my, my placement was there. I actually ended up staying for three weeks, not a month, because I wanted to get on with my travels a week earlier. And it was a great experience being there. That was a really safe, very nice way to start my travels, to be in a place where it was comfortable, it was safe, the people were amazing, the other volunteers in that hostel So I was able to gather a lot of the notes from the travelers and kind of like literally put them on my phone and then kind of take off after three weeks of volunteering. And so I stayed in Colombia for six more weeks after that. So I stayed in Colombia for a little more than two months. But before finishing those two months in Colombia, I had decided that I was going to be going into Ecuador and Peru and Bolivia for sure until Thanksgiving. Okay. Yeah. So you had this like set plan. So this is interesting. So you had been saving up for a house yeah. because you thought teaching was this path for you. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out that it's not. Well, it turns out at the moment that I was definitely unhappy with where I was at. Can you describe like where you were at for us? Yeah. So I was working for a charter school in the L.A. County. Mm-hmm. And I had been working for this charter school for all of my teaching career for five years, which again includes the first year of co-teaching during my teacher residency. As the years progressed working for the charter, at least for me in particular, it was it felt very rigid and it was very fast paced. And because of the rigidness as well, it was also very difficult to kind of immerse Anything that I felt would like help supplement my students' learning. So it made me very dissatisfied with my job and it made me feel like I was immensely inadequate. And those feelings 
got stronger and stronger as the years went by. And I just realized that, at least at that point, I was realizing that where I was at with teaching was making me very unhappy. And so at that point, I thought that if I were to get a different teaching experience, it would be different. Hmm. It wasn't until I started identifying that my health was getting impacted that I realized, oh, okay, I need to get out. So your working conditions cause you to kind of evaluate, and your health in particular cause you to evaluate your profession. Mm -hmm. You take out your savings from your this house that you want to buy, and then you decide that you're going to Columbia for a month, which turns into four months. Mm -hmm. What was that like for you as a solo traveler? Deciding literally step by step, like, can you paint a picture of, like, what that was like for us who weren't there? <laughs> We're really curious. <laughs> yeah, no, good question. I felt a little bit of fear before I went to Colombia. But I came to realize at that point when I was feeling this, like, bit of fear that my joy and my excitement to travel surpassed the amount of fear I was feeling. Which was a very, very, like, good indicator to me that... I was okay to go. Mm. Fear was not going to like hold me back. And I tend to be a more fearful person, just generally speaking, like anything that can potentially go wrong or where I feel like my safety is at risk. I tend to kind of not put myself in positions that could potentially even be great. But mm. because that fear kind of takes over, I usually hold back. But in this case, it didn't. Now, while I was in Colombia traveling solo, it did not feel at all like I was a solo traveler. Mm. I didn't feel lonely at all until maybe like, Two and a half months into the travels was the first time I ever experienced like any loneliness. And it was short-lived. It lasted like two days max. And then I wasn't feeling lonely <laughs> I anymore. I then you're on a beach. You were like, all right, I have this. <laughs> I met some incredible travelers that kind of helped me pick up my spirits. And then I continued on. Can you talk to me a little bit more about like these fears? Where were they based? What were they rooted in? Like, how, when did you know you were more like of a fear? Not fearful person, but risk-averse person. Yeah. I know that, like, I'm a more risk-averse. So mm -hmm. you said I hadn't heard of that term before. Risk-averse person. a nice way of saying you get scared a lot. Yeah, I get scared <laughs> a lot. It's so funny because I've actually talked to my mom about, like, different experiences that make me feel scared and make me feel like, oh, I don't know if I should do it. And she always goes back to the idea that, like, Miha, when you were a baby, you were very scared to do things all the time. You were mm. a very, like, fearful baby. Learning how to walk scared you. Learning how to do a lot of things, like, really scared me. And so my mom tries to explain to me that just generally speaking, like that's how she's kind of known me to be, just to kind of be maybe fearful to the point of like sometimes not allowing myself to have experiences because mm -hmm. I let the fear hold me back, which is something that I'm like learning right now to kind of work on, you know? I'm glad that I have fear because sometimes fear does keep me from doing very like risky things that will actually <laughs> endanger me you know mm -hmm. so that's good but it's not good if it's going to hold you back from doing having great experiences yeah I mean some examples that I know that where like fear has held me back was even back in high school when I was applying for colleges I decided that I wanted to apply to San Francisco State University and mm. I actually got in yeah I, I got in within like a month of applying which is something rare because you never see or I had never heard of university sending out acceptance letters within like a month of applying you usually get it around like February March April and mm -hmm. I got it in November I remember oh like, wow when I applied in October so I was like oh wow you know and I was ecstatic like oh my gosh San Francisco my family and I we went to 
I actually forgot if we went to visit the campus after I got accepted or before, but we did take like a campus visit and I was in love. But it wasn't until a few months before you graduate and you have to submit your intent to register. Yeah. That I freaked out. Really? And I didn't go. And so I decided to go to a local university, to Cal State Fullerton. I had great experiences, you know, and again, no regrets. <laughs> I don't have regrets because I am who I am now because of the experiences I've had, whether mm-hmm. they've been based out of fear, based out of courage, whatever they may be. But it was unfortunate that I didn't go somewhere that I actually wanted to go solely because I was scared. Yeah. What were you afraid of? It was just like anxiety that I was feeling like separation, mm. leaving my family, those fears, you know? Well, those fears and anxiety put together, I guess. Another example of how I knew that fear really had control of me, like over things I wanted to do, was when I was 19, I wanted to go take a one-month volunteer trip to Ghana in Africa. Mm. And it was something that I had wanted to do since I was a teenager. When I was 19, I actually like looked further into it to where like I found the perfect like organization that I felt was like affordable that I was going to be safe, that was going to allow me opportunity to work in projects that I wanted to, which at that time was like working with children. I submitted my deposit, which I believe was like 200, maybe 200, $500. It was in the hundreds. Oh, wow. That's a lot of money. So I secured my spot. And then when it came down to buying the flight, which was the next stop, I froze. Mm. And I like physically couldn't purchase it. So then I emailed them that I wasn't going to be going. I got scared again. Mm. I got scared of like going off and doing something on my own. If you notice, the patterns are me leaving home. Yeah. So then the next thing that happened that I was like, oh, uh-uh, I am not going to let my fear of separating from my comforts hold me back from like doing what I want to do. So now at this point, now I'm realizing that like if I'm going to get into Teach for America, I'm going to more than likely be placed somewhere that's going to have me move from my comforts in Anaheim. Mm -hmm. And so I decided, I was like, I am not going to allow my anxiety take over and keep me from pursuing my next goal in life. So I decided to take advantage of the counseling services that Cal State Fullerton offers, like Mm -hmm. for free, and go see a counselor about this anxiety I was feeling. Yeah. And so through like a lot of talking, I kind of learned to understand what it was that was holding me back and what I needed to do if I didn't want these fears to constantly take over my life because they were going to like paralyze me and not let me do things. But I think what you said is, is impactful for me too, as someone who suffers from like anxiety, Mm -hmm. you know, and perfectionism Mm -hmm. and some of these like more mental health related, Mm -hmm. you know, these challenges. Yeah. Challenges. Yeah. And especially as like a woman of color, especially as a Latina, right? We know Mm -hmm. in the Latino community, like addressing mental health is such a stigma that I, one, I'm just really proud that you did it. Mm-hmm. And two, I'm really proud that, like, you didn't allow yourself to want your comforts and stick with them on the South America journey. Mm-hmm. Knowing that it actually took a lot for you to even just, like, buy your plane ticket to South America. Mm-hmm. What are some of your big reflections after having spent nine months there? I am much stronger than I think I am or that I like sometimes. Yes, queen. Yes. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I'm able to do more than I thought I could do too. Being in South America had me rely solely, mostly on myself, on travelers that I met, on locals that I reached out to for any advice, any help on locations, any of that. 
I didn't have the comforts of reaching out to the friends that I'd reach out to or the family that I'd reach out to if I was over here. Mm -hmm. I had like their love and support from afar, but surviving and getting through from one town to another, from one country to another was all solely like me and the people that I was meeting. Mm -hmm. I also came back with the reflection of like the bubble that I've been living in, in the U.S., in California, and then down to a smaller bubble, like in L.A. County, Orange County. Gosh, it's just like a little minuscule of what like the reality is of the world. Mm -hmm. Because being in South America, I was able to go to big cities. I saw, I went to like little villages. I went to communities that are being underserved. I went to communities that are very affluent. And it was, it was just eye-opening also to see not just that, but also to see the different lifestyles that there are, the kind of more laid back, a little bit more chill lifestyles that there are in many places in South America compared to the the lifestyle that I feel when I'm here in LA and Orange County, mm -hmm. which is much faster. Traveling made me realize that like nature is just so beautiful <laughs> and I, I just want to see more of it. Were there any like big revelations you had about what it's like to be a woman internationally, either like from the local communities or, you know, as a woman traveler from another country? And traveling through South America, I came to like a different like understanding of how body image is viewed and almost like the toxic ideals of beauty in the U.S. compared mm -hmm. to what I witnessed amongst the travelers that I encountered in South America mm -hmm. and even like the locals themselves. I came back from South America with like a clear understanding that like these like distorted ideas of what like beauty is are A, well, really, really messed up and like B, like they're just ideals that like society pushes on us. Like it's not what reality has to be. Mm. And so I did come back feeling like I owe it to myself to like love myself more. And to feel more confident in the body that I have. And I saw people just exude so much more like liberation with their body mm -hmm. than I have ever witnessed in like the culture that I live in here. This was a super fascinating facet, I think, of your travels. Because as like a plus size woman in the United States, there is not a day that I don't think about my body, right? Mm -hmm. If it's like to fit within a space to get in between people, if it's of like, I'm taking up too much space, if it's trying on clothes, like I think there are a lot of ways in which our society makes you think about your body. Mm -hmm. Our poor body goes through a lot to keep us alive. It mm -hmm. like functions for us 24-7. And the idea that like it doesn't get the, the respect and the love that it rightfully deserves for the simple notion that it doesn't look like the ideals that are usually like pushed on us mm -hmm. is a really sad thing. And it's such a, I'm realizing more and more what a lack of self-love that is for ourselves to be constantly criticizing ourselves for not looking a certain way. Hi, Shira. Hey, Jenny. How's it going? It's good. How about you? I'm good. I just got off a Skype call with our intern, Emma, in North Carolina. How convenient. It was so convenient. She was having problems with the CRM, and I was able to chat with her over Skype and walk her through it. It was fantastic. Aren't we lucky? Because this first season of Web of Women is sponsored exclusively by Skype, which is a Microsoft product. 
Skype is software that enables the world's conversations. Millions of people and businesses use Skype to make free video and voice calls, whether it's one-on-one or in groups. And people also use Skype to send instant messages and share files and send gifts. So thank you to Skype for sponsoring this season. I should also note that while Skype facilitates conversations like the one on this episode, that doesn't mean that Skype approves of or agrees with any of the opinions being shared. Those belong solely to the people who are speaking them. Okay, let's get back to the show. Bye. All of this is fascinating and leads us to this car where we're at in the USC parking lot. What drives you? I think my curiosity to want to learn, my curiosity to want to like see, to want to understand like different people, different places, want to absorb knowledge that others may find unnecessary <laughs> or, or questioning like, why do you want to learn that? Just my curiosity is what drives me there. I want to get to a place where I feel that I am doing purposeful work and that I feel that I'm giving back to communities really that's it and I think that's just going to look different throughout my life like the past five years I was doing it through education through Mm -hmm. teaching in the classroom and doing the best that I could with giving back to the children and giving back to the families within the community that I was working at as of now it looks like I'm going to be leading in a different path and if I'm able to feel like what I'm doing has a purpose and that I'm giving back to communities that's really what I want to do who do you feel like you're giving back to now, or is it still the same community? And how do you define that? How do you define community um, and people you're going to give back to? Yeah, the communities I want to give back to are communities that are being underserved and underrepresented. Mm-hmm. So whether it's a Latino community would be a community that I think I most connect with, a working class Latino community, because that's where I come from. But as long as I'm serving communities that are in need, whether it's communities within the homeless population, or whether it's communities within a different ethnic background for me, whatever it may be, as long as I'm being of service, I think that's, that's what I want. When was the first time you felt politically aware? <laughs> it's really, really sad, honestly, for me to even like talk about politics, because I don't feel like I've been the most politically active American or remotely as politically active as they should be. Mm -hmm. It just has stemmed from, like, not feeling very connected Mm -hmm. to just, like, political movements. Not to say that they're not affecting me or my communities, but I just didn't feel connected. Actually, there was a time a short while back where I felt so overwhelmed with what was happening in our country politically Mm -hmm. that I, I actually thought, like, man, I need to limit the amount of articles I'm reading on just, like, what's happening within our country, within our government, within, like, our politics, because it's, like, taking a toll on my emotions, Mm -hmm. which is obviously just a way of me escaping, which is not—it's also not helping, though. Where do you get your political knowledge? Like, what sources? Yeah, or, like, (laughs) how did you even— Instagram, Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) You're making me feel so much better for posting all these politically aware articles on my Facebook, because I— I do click on your articles (laughs) once in a while. Yes, yes. (laughs) Where do I source my news from? Danielle Kian. <laughs> when was the first time you felt aware of your gender? And how has sexism affected your life? It's been a part of my life as far back as like my memories go, because that's just the type of home structure that I was raised in. 
where like gender was very separated and gender norms were very clear cut and mm-hmm. like expectations. Can you set the stage of like the type of household you're mm-hmm. like, what does that mean for you as a young Latina woman? Yeah. So I I grew up in a family of eight. So my two parents and six kids, including me. Amongst the six kids, it was it is three brothers and three sisters, including me again. And so my family household was run very like rigid when it came to like what girls were expected to do, what boys were expected to do. And this is something that I've like come to kind of understand more and more as I've gotten older. Because mm. growing up, though it felt uncomfortable and though it felt like I needed to constantly challenge what was being expected of me, it also felt normal mm. because that's all I had ever known. But yeah, I was very well aware that being a woman or identifying as a woman was drastically different than what the experiences that a man had Mm -hmm. just because of the simple expectations that the machismo within my family, how like our family ran with like what girls were supposed to do at home, how they were supposed to like take care of household chores, pick up after their brothers and anyone who made a mess, not allowed to go out with friends ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) Um, it's real. Even for like school purposes, it was like a no, they can come to the house, you're not going. Mm -hmm. Having to lie about simple things that I wanted to do, like whether it was going to the movies with a friend or going over to a friend's house to like legitly finish a school project, having to lie about those things because I couldn't do them because I was a girl. And it was like very explicitly told to me, like, you can't do it because you're a girl and something can happen to you. Yeah. Whereas my brothers had none of that, none of that whatsoever. Even the idea of like being fearful of like potentially considering like bringing home a guy that was even just like a friend. Like, even amongst the group of, like, girlfriends, but bringing home a guy just because that's your friend, you know? So, if that was a fear, like, never did I imagine, like, even bringing home a potential boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Because, like, a guy was off limits. And even, like, speaking to a guy or being found speaking to a guy, like, outside school when, like, my dad was going to pick me up anytime that he was able to Mm -hmm. was, like, a dread to me. Like, oh, I can't allow him to see me speaking to a guy or I'm going to get in trouble Mm -hmm. for even, like, associating myself. So it was like very clear cut that I was a woman and that, well, I was a girl becoming a woman and that it was going to be a different experience. Mm-hmm. How did Young and Nell respond to that? Oh, gosh. that I guess I was very defiant when it came to that. And there was tons and tons of fights and arguments because of that, especially with my dad. Mm-hmm. Because my dad was the one that kind of inflicted most of it. And even like getting resentful feelings towards my brothers because my brothers never challenged it. To them, it was probably just like it was for me growing up. It was like normal. If it didn't feel right for me, which is why the arguments and the fights always happened, but it was a norm. It was something that I accepted. That's what my family did. And that's what my family was going to do. So yeah, it it impacted me in that regard. Like the feelings I developed of my brothers, the feelings I developed of my dad, the relationship I had with my dad growing up was very, very strained and difficult. And it's still something that, like, I'm working on today, you know? Because even though I'm a woman, even though I don't live in the house, the views are still there. Mm. So anytime a conversation comes up about, like, me being a woman or anything that I may do that will potentially, like, put me in an unsafe situation Mm -hmm. from what my dad thinks, it's just something that always comes up. I realize that a lot of the decisions I decided to make also were fights with my family because of the safety of being a woman abroad, right? And I think it goes back to what you're saying about the patriarchy. But it's always that constant pushback of like, well, you can't drive by yourself. You can't do this by yourself. And 
I think it is related a little bit to like the machismo you're talking about, right? Which is mm-hmm. something particularly that comes out of Latin America. Yes. Could yeah. you describe like what was machismo for you? Because I think it's something that very explicitly affects, it can affect other groups, but very explicitly affects Latino women. Mm-hmm. What I understand machismo to be and like what I've experienced machismo to be has been this idea that women are less in control of themselves. Mm-hmm. Women are more endangered, really, and at risk for their safety. That women are also the reason why things happen to them, as opposed to thinking that if any potential harm comes to a woman, it's because of the person that inflicted it upon them. Mm-hmm. Whereas my chismo is more so like, it's because you're a woman and you have no way of escaping the fact that that's what you are. So it's your fault if anything happens, you know? Mm. Yeah, and like, I think women are blamed like internationally for mm-hmm. things that happened to us like mm-hmm. oh you were out at dark like it what was were you wearing yes exactly what did you say what messages were you sending why did you go back to a private place with that person mm-hmm. everything is viewed as what did the woman do wrong mm-hmm. or where is the woman at fault and I think that's a huge it's a huge patriarchy culture to think that like women are at fault for anything unsafe that happens to them for the sole reason of being women all of this. I'm just going to co-sign all of this because it's yeah. speaking to me. Yes. <laughs> um, you don't have any of the last thoughts? No, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Perfect. Well, bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Web of Women. Next episode is the third link in the third interview chain. I interviewed my former colleague, Megan Murphy, in episode three. Then she interviewed her fiancé, Hillary Rosen, in episode seven. Next week, it's Hillary's turn. I'm so excited to test out this new kind of podcast with you. If you have any questions or feedback, or if you want to start your own web, email me at web at wondermedianetwork.com. You can also find us on Instagram at WMN.media and on Twitter at WMN Media. This episode was produced by me, Jenny Kaplan, with help from Allie Lindenberg, Shira Atkins, and Ben Brewer. A huge thanks to Overcoats for the music and to the women of the web for making this show possible. Talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>